Then spoke Joshua to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered up the Amori before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still upon Givon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 69, The Stopping of the Sun and the Miracle of the Moon. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 2017, two scientists from Cambridge made the remarkable assertion that they were able to give the exact date, thousands of years ago, on which a famous biblical story occurred. Thus we are informed in the Times of Israel, quote, Cambridge researchers announced Monday that they have pinpointed the date of the biblical account of Joshua stopping the sun, which they claim is the day of the oldest eclipse ever recorded, to October 30th, 1207 BCE exactly 3,224 years ago. In a paper published in the Royal Astronomical Society journal Astronomy and Geophysics, researchers explained that they were consequently also able to refine the dates of the reigns of two Egyptian pharaohs of that era, Ramesses the Great and his son, Merneptah. End quote. The exegetical interpretation provided by these scientists for one of the most famous tales in the Tanakh is a fascinating one. And whether or not it is correct, the texts that they study, as well as the Egyptian records utilized in their argument, help us to understand something profoundly important about the nature of the Jewish people. Chapter 9 of Joshua describes how members of one of the Canaanite peoples, Chivites, living in Givon, decide to trick Israel into a treaty. Verse 3, And when the inhabitants of Givon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, They acted cunningly, and went and took provisions, and took old sacks upon their donkeys, and wine bottles, old and rent and patched up, and old worn and patched shoes upon their feet, and worn garments upon them. And all the bread of their provision was dry, and had become crumbs. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him, and to the men of Israel, We are come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. According to Maimonides, These Gibbonites were mistaken in assuming that this charade was necessary. They could have made peace with Joshua by openly surrendering and rejecting pagan practices. But the ruse is effective. The Israelites are fooled, and they make peace in a covenant that invokes the name of the God of Israel. Chapter 9, verse 15. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swore to them. And it came to pass at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Givon and Kephira and Beirot and Kiryat Yarim. And the children of Israel smote them not because the princes of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Thus we are told by the Bible. In other words, even if taken under mistaken information, violating an oath that was uttered with the invocation of the God of Israel, would produce a chilul Hashem, a desecration of God's name. That makes the covenant inviolable. And the alliance formed obligates Israel not only into a state of peace with the Gibbonites, but also a commitment to defend them if their alliance with Israel becomes a threat to them from other peoples in Canaan. This aspect of the oath is also fulfilled by Israel because soon five Canaanite kings wage war against Givon. 
chapter 10, verse 2. And Adoni Tzedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Yarmu, and to Yafia, king of Lachish, and to Devir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, that we may smite Givon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Faithful to the covenant, to the alliance, Joshua musters the Israelite in Givon's defense. As the battle is waged, God sends some form of miraculous hail from heaven. And, perhaps something even more miraculous, occurs. Joshua 10, verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and were on the descent to Beit Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them as far as Azekah, and they died. They were more that died with the hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. Then spoke Joshua to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered up the Amori before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still upon Givon, and moon in the valley of Ayalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. The sun and the moon stood still. How are we to understand this? The sun stopped, the moon stayed? What is the meaning of this miracle? The standard interpretation of the Hebrew word describing the sun in this passage, dom, is that it refers to the stopping of its cycle through the sky, a pause in the journey of the sun. But the word, it has been suggested, could refer not to the sun stopping, but to the lessening of its light, to the sun becoming dimmed. And therefore, the two Cambridge scientists argued that what is being described in our passage is an eclipse. And further, they noted, if we know of an eclipse that occurred in that age, then we can know exactly when this battle took place. Thus, the article in the Times of Israel tells us, quote, The researchers note that they were not the first to interpret the words as referring to an astronomical event. Robert Wilson suggested it in 1918. However, until recently, it was impossible to confirm the exact date of the eclipse due to the laborious nature of the calculations required. More recently, researchers were unable to find any eclipse occurring during the time that the Israelites were in Canaan. However, they only considered total eclipses, where the moon passes between the sun and the earth, blocking the sunlight completely. Their new research found, however, that an annular eclipse, in which the moon passes directly in front of the sun, but is too far away to cover the disk completely, leading to the characteristic ring of fire appearance, occurred on October 30th, 1207 BCE. The researchers note that the ancient world did not distinguish linguistically between total and annular eclipses, end quote. This is their argument. What Joshua is describing is what is known today as an annular eclipse. The statement from the university, we are told in the article, further notes that the presence of Israel in the Holy Land by the time of that annular eclipse can be verified by an enormous slab of stone known as the stele of the pharaoh Merneptah, a record of the pharaoh's military exploits, which makes reference to the children of Israel in the land of Canaan, the first extra-biblical reference that exists to the people of Israel. This, then, is the audacious interpretation by these Cambridge physicists of the text in Joshua. If we are to interpret the text this way, then what occurred during the battle was less a stopping of the sun and more a dimming of it. And it would seem for this interpretation, then, that like the splitting of the Jordan, Israel entering the land is re-experiencing here some of the wonders of the Exodus. Its enemies become the victims of hail from the sky, just as the Egyptians were. And they experience a darkening of the sun, just like the penultimate of the ten plagues. But as interesting as this interpretation is, 
My own inclination in reading the story in Joshua is to embrace the traditional approach, because the Bible here also uses the verb vaya'amod, and it stopped regarding the sun, in the original Hebrew in verse 13. Vaya'amod ha-shemesh b'chatsi ha-shamayim, lavo kiyom tamid. And the sun stood still in the middle of the sky and hastened not to go down about a whole day. And so in understanding the meaning of this miracle, that the sun stopped, we need to further ponder not only what occurred, but also why it occurred at this moment. Consider how seemingly strange it is. Israel fights any number of battles in the Holy Land, and it is only in defending the Gibonites that this wonder takes place. This is the Bible's summation of the battle in verse 14. And there was no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord hearkened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Why would this battle be celebrated above all others? The answer, I think, is that for all the false advertising in which the Gibonites engaged, Israel's honoring of the alliance was done in order to give glory to the name of God and to avoid the desecration of God's name. God's ineffable name, made up of the letters yud and then vav or Y-H-V-H, is linked in Hebrew to the word havaya, or being. When Moses at the burning bush inquires as to the identity of the God, that is sending him to redeem Israel from Egypt. The Almighty's answer is, asher I will be that I will be, which the rabbis understand to mean, I will be with Israel in this crisis, and I will be with Israel in the future. In identifying himself in this way, God thereby allows us to better understand his biblical name, YHVH, as a melding of the words, God was, is, and will be. It connotes the name of God who seeks to relate to humanity, who ultimately joins himself to Israel, and who promises that he will be with Israel throughout history. The ineffable name of God refers, as the exegete Kasuto put it, to the God who fulfills his promises. This, I think, is the meaning of God's concluding words to Moses at the burning bush. After he has identified himself as, Hayah asher Hayah, I will be that I will be, he then tells Moses, Ko tomar al-b'nei Yisrael, so shall you say to the children of Israel, YHVH, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, sent me to you. Zesh mi li-olam lidor vador. This, God says, is my name forever, and this is how I shall be remembered from generation to generation. Meaning, I shall be known throughout Jewish history as the God whom Israel trusts eternally. And indeed, ladies and gentlemen, the fascinating fact is, that it was precisely at times when life was more difficult for Jews that our people made manifest this faith. When much of the world pointed to the persecution that we suffered, to the exiles we experienced, to the ghettos we endured, and argued that God's promises to us had been abrogated, Jews stubbornly responded something very simple. God had promised to redeem Israel. God had promised to be with Israel. And that means that we believe what God says even if we do not understand how God's promise will be fulfilled. This point was made most famously by the Jewish theologian Michael Wishagrad when he met the Christian theologian Karl Barth. Wishagrad was a huge admirer of Barth and had learned a great deal from him. Barth suddenly told Wishagrad that while Jews have God's promise, it is Christians that have the fulfillment of that promise. Wishagrad replied, Professor Barth, with a human being it is one thing to have his promise, another the fulfillment. He may die before he is able to carry it out, or he may change his mind, 
or he may be unable to do so. But with God it is different. When he promises something, it is like money in the bank. Therefore, if Jews have the promise, we have the fulfillment. And if we do not have the fulfillment, we do not have the promise. Bart reflected and replied, You know, I never thought of it that way. And so, God's name is God who was, is, and will be with the people of Israel throughout history. And interestingly, if there is a vindication of all that Judaism believes, it can be found in part in the very stele of Pharaoh Merneptah, the one to which the Cambridge scientists referred. The stele does indeed reference Israel and the Holy Land, but it says more than that. Here are the words describing the area of Canaan. Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome. Gezer has been captured. Yanoam is made non-existent. Israel is laid waste, and his seed is not. So the Pharaoh of Egypt proclaimed on his pillar. As Rabbi Sachs put it once, the Merneptah Stele, the first mention of Israel outside the Bible, is an obituary for Israel, one which appears on a piece of stone that makes mention of any number of peoples, and yet Israel is the only one on the Stele that still exists today. Merneptah's ancient obituary for a nation that is very much alive teaches us that there is no other nation like Israel. Merneptah Stele instructs us not only about the history of the past, but also about the miracles of the present. And this, I think, is the meaning of the miracle that occurs in the defense of Givon. During the battle, time stopped because Israel engaged in it in order to honor its obligations to the eternal name of God, a name that testifies to the fact that God's own word cannot be undone by the changing times. During the battle, the sun and the moon ceased their cycles. Time itself froze, changeless, like the very nature of God's word itself. Israel, which bears the luminous revelation of God, is often compared to the moon in Jewish tradition, the moon which reflects the light of the sun. Thus, in this battle, a poetic symbol emerges. The sun and the moon stand still. Israel, which honors God's name, reflects in its own continuity the timelessness of the promise of God. After all, as we will see in our journey throughout the Hebrew Bible, the stele of Merneptah is not alone in predicting and announcing the demise of the Jews. In London's British Museum in the Assyrian wing, excavated ancient palaces proudly proclaim the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BCE and of the Judean city of Lachish in 601 BCE. In Berlin's Pergamon Museum, Nebuchadnezzar's palace has been reconstructed, a testament to the man who ravaged Solomon's temple in Jerusalem in 566 BCE. In Rome, Titus's arch still clearly shows the menorah and other treasures beyond compare, taken from Jerusalem's second temple in 70 CE. And yet, with Joshua, the sun stopped and the moon paused in I alone. Israel first redeemed from Egypt by the God named I will be that I will be reflects the unchanging firmness of the word in God in the people's own mysterious timelessness. I do not know the precise date of Joshua's battle at Givon, but I believe that it occurred. And one of the sources of my faith is the fact that one need not have been on the battlefield in Givon to witness the defiance of the ravages of time. All one need do is to visit a museum as a Jew and to realize what it means to embody eternity. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.